Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics ever, masturbation. While masturbation is not a dirty word, it's not uncommon to feel shame and guilt when it comes to self-pleasure. This is due to a combination of cultural norms, religious influences, lack of meaningful media representation, harmful myths we all learned in sex ed, and more. But masturbation should be talked about in a positive light, and we should be honest about the very real positive impacts it has for people especially for women and people with vulvas. That's why I decided to take pleasure into my own hands, figuratively and literally, with a magic wand masturbation experiment. In a nutshell, I wanted to answer one question. What is the impact of daily magic wand use on my health and wellness, as well as my sexual experience, when compared to regular sexual activity and no sexual activity? Want to see how the experiment unfolded? Check out sexedwithdb.com slash magicwandexperiment now. Here are my top three favorite things I love about Uberlube. Number one, Uberlube makes sex feel a lot more pleasurable. It's as simple yet as powerful as that. Number two, Uberlube is recommended by leading doctors and its body-friendly ingredient list is widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. And number three, Uberlube will not stain clothing or bedding. Any spills can be easily cleaned with detergent and water. Get your bottle of Uberlube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Me and my partner exit our ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50 plus years in business, Lion's Den is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lion's Den offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. Think about your medicine cabinet for a hot second. What's in there? Maybe you have your deodorant, face wash, toothpaste, condoms, plan B, and a new moisturizer. But what if you added abortion pills or a plan C? just in case your plan A and plan B didn't work or wasn't available. Let me tell you about getting access to abortion pills in advance with Plan C. Go to plancpills.org and select the state or territory that you live in from the drop-down menu. Then look for the pills in advance icon by the provider or resource. Plan C shares not only how to get abortion pills in advance by mail in your state, but also real-time abortion care options, as well as info on in-person clinics, hotlines for support, FAQs, and more. Follow them on social media at Plan C Pills and visit plancpills.org to learn more, get abortion pills in advance, and join the movement. Hello, Sex Ed with DB fam. Hope you all are doing wonderfully. You are in for a real treat this episode. I am joined by the lovely Allison Raskin, who is a Jill of all trades, really, a writer, podcaster, master in psychology, and emotional support lady. 
And this is our first ever OCD specific episode, which is so shocking to me after over 170 episodes at this point. We talk all about OCD in this episode, and we discuss how OCD overlaps with sexuality and relationships. And we talk about how Allison's such a wonderful mental health advocate and how you could be too if you want to. So check out her advice at the end of the episode. Want to remind you of our new merch. Go to sexedwithdb.com slash merch to get your stickers, mugs, shirts, and more now. And if you rate us five stars and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, you could win your very own sticker. So email us a screenshot at sexedwithdb at gmail.com and you could win. Here I am with Allison Raskin. Hello, Allison. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Of course. It is my pleasure. I mentioned this before we started, but Sadie, our wonderful producer here at Sex Ed with DB, is a big fan of yours. So I would love to give her a little shout out from you if that if we can just start off with a, a little bit of positivity here. Oh my God. Hello, Sadie. Thank you so much. I also love the name Sadie. It's a very good name. It's yeah. Very she good. she is wonderful. She matches how good the name is. So that's really <laughs> great. Uh, but yeah, welcome to the show. I'm really, really happy to have you. Uh, I'd love for you to just start by sharing a little bit about yourself and your background. Oof, yes. I have a, um, a bizarre background. I do a lot of different things, so I'll try to streamline it a bit. Um, but basically, I'm I'm from Westchester County, New York. I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was like 15 years old. I decided I wanted to be a screenwriter when I was touring USC's campus on my college tour with my parents. Um, and then I came out to LA to get a degree in screenwriting. And then when I was in college, my professor was like, everything's on the internet, make stuff for the internet. And so I started doing that. And that's really like what's led me to having a career at all. Um, and so I worked at BuzzFeed back in 2014, 2015. I started a YouTube channel with my comedy partner, Gabe Dunn, called Just Between Us. And through all of like the internet content that I was doing, which really started out with like a comedy lean to it. I was also sharing a lot about like my mental health history and like my mental health experience simply because that's my life. I've had um, OCD since I was four years old. So it was hard for me to like share myself without sharing that part. And then um, realizing that people really wanted to hear more about that. And so over the last few years, I have shifted um, – into really diving into mental health work, mental health advocacy. I actually went back to school and got a graduate degree in psychology just so that I kind of knew what I was talking about a bit more. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then I have a, a Substack and Instagram called Emotional Support Lady that are based around all things mental health and also my first nonfiction book, which is called Overthinking About You and explores sort of the intersection between mental health and romantic relationships. Wow. Really <laughs> awesome. I I love how, first of all, you seem to be like a drac jack of all trades kind of person or a jail of all trades, however you want to put it. Um, so that's really neat. And you clearly have a lot of different talents. I also love having people on and, you know, not really knowing about their backgrounds in depth before I have them on and being like, wait a minute, we're similar in this way. We're similar in this way. Like I'm from Long Island. Um, I also went to college. I went on the West coast. I went to Berkeley. Um, I studied film and media. Uh, I also have, uh, OCD and anxiety and have since I was a very little kid. 
Um, and I also went back to school for my master's of public health to focus on sexuality and reproductive health to know a little bit of what I'm talking about since <laughs> doing sex with DB. So very cool to see that we have kind of these like parallel universes going on, although no book I, that, from me. So very not impressed. Yet. Who not knows? Yet, not yet. Who knows? Uh, very <laughs> lengthy process, but very cool. Um, so wow. Okay. So like you said, you content creator, YouTube channel with Gabe Dunn, writing at BuzzFeed, developing TV shows, and now focusing on mental health advocacy with your popular Instagram and newsletter called Emotional Support Lady. And by the way, I mentioned this off air, but before this interview, I was really scrolling through and there, if you haven't seen it, audience, cutie audience, go check it out, Emotional Support Lady on Instagram. And there are these like really cute, simple figure drawings with speech bubbles. And there were just so many of them that I really related to. And you could tell by the engagement that a lot of other people do. So I just thought it was a brilliant idea that you've implemented there. Um, But I'm wondering if you can share any key moments or kind of like realizations that led to this evolution in your work. And how did your earlier career maybe kind of projectile you into where you are now? Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, if you're like, Allison, what is your dream? It's like, I want to create it my own TV show and I want to show run a TV show. And the one thing that I have not been able to do is be staffed on a TV show. <laughs> um, and so my career has really been me just saying yes to other things, like, and just kind of like following what's working, you know? So like I have written in pretty much like every medium that exists. Um, I've written a scripted podcast called gossip. I was hired to write a feature film that never got made. I've written many TV scripts that die in development. And um, I've written young adult novels. I'm working on my first rom-com novel. Um, I write nonfiction. Like it's, it's basically just me being like, okay, how do I view myself as a storyteller and then be open to whatever different way I can sort of like share my story? And I'd say that with the shift into emotional support lady, you know, so many of like the big things in my life kind of revolved around very little thought (laughs) Um, where like my YouTube channel, Just Between Us, that's now a weekly podcast. So check that out. Um, Actually, it's a bi-weekly podcast. We have two, which is bananas. Um, But like that was just like me and Gabe being like, we should make something. Uh, what should we call it? I don't know. I like, I don't even know how we came up with that idea. Like the first I like few that videos. Name. I think it's good. Oh, thank you. Uh, the first few videos, you can't even see us. It's so dark, <laughs> you know, and then it became this like really like um, calling card for us. And then when I went back to school, I went back to school because my career was sort of in um, – like a lull, I would say. And I was kind of panicking. And I was like, maybe I need to have a backup idea to make money and support myself. So I was like, I could be a therapist, which is, I think, a thought that occurs to a lot of us that are struggling (laughs) and don't know what to do with our careers. Um, Because it's a wonderful, I mean, it's just like a wonderful career path. Um, There's so many different things you can do with that degree. Um, And then when I was in school, I was like, well, I want to be sharing more about what I'm learning, but I don't really want to be doing it like on my main, you know, my main Instagram, my main socials. Like, what if I create this, this own thing around it? So again, I did like 10 minutes of brainstorming, came up with emotional support lady, 
started the Instagram. Wow, 10 minutes. Good for you. You oh, just you. I mean, like you said, <laughs> going with what works, right? Like clearly it has hit for people. Yeah, it, it, part of why I think it hit for people was because like within a few months of starting it, my fiance walked out on me and I had a horrible uh, trauma and loss and and was like actively processing it on the page and so I mm. think that that vulnerability and that like um just like heartache was like kind of something a lot of people had been through like a lot I found out like a lot of people have been like abruptly left by their partners with like little to no explanation um and so like it was a way to like the kind of like I think launched and, and grew the community um and then since then it's just been really exciting you know to see it continue and to now have like you know longer form uh, posts on the Substack uh, while still having the fun cartoons. But originally, it was not cartoons. It was just like me attempting to use Canva, <laughs> and then I I did like one little cartoon because I wanted to just like explain something. And then I was like talking to my friend, and she was like, you know, she's like it was in advertising and was like um, an artistic director at Sarah Romanoff, and she was like, I think you should just like go all in on these cartoons, like just like make that your brand. Wow. And um, and so good advice. I did. And I, I have to – for people who haven't seen it, which I'm assuming is most people listening, I'm not a good drawer. <laughs> but that's the whole point. Like it's so relatable that you're like, I can fucking draw this. But the, the words that you're saying are so <laughs> profound and unique and I feel like they, – yeah, you could, they really resonate with people, including myself. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah. A lot of it is things I've heard in school or I've collected from other people. So it's, it's – um, they're not all just like – unique thoughts of Allison, but um, I do try to like hit on things that really stuck with me because then it's likely to to stick with other people. Totally. Yeah. I, I saw one today that was like, am I really good at work or is it just my OCD? And I think like for myself, like my journey with OCD and anxiety is like, I feel like it was really bad as a kid where I was kind of like, in the shower, you know, I would like line up those shampoo bottles, like everything in my room had to be like exactly where it was. Like my friends would make fun of me if they came over and they like moved something. I'd be like, guys, don't do that. That's really <laughs> bothersome to me. And like, you know, it manifests in different ways. And I think like now that I feel like more secure in certain aspects of my life, my anxiety and OCD has like quieted a bit, but it's definitely a journey. Um, literally like five minutes before this podcast started, I just got my period. And so like straight up, like without fail, like two days before my period every month, I'm just like an absolute emotional and anxious oh. wreck. And it's just kind of like a, you know, it's just something that a lot of people go through and specifically people with uteruses and women. And like, it's just a tough thing that's like kind of normalized. Um, but that's, that's my own experience at least. But Speaking of OCD, um, you know, throughout your career, you've really candidly shared your journey of managing OCD since you said you were you were four and its effects on your life. And so I'm wondering, like reflecting on your personal growth, how do you perceive kind of the changes of your relationship with OCD throughout your life? And like, in what ways has your journey with it influenced your approach to how you do mental health advocacy today? Oh, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing, and this is like where I'm going to get controversial. Please. Is like the main way to fight to the main way to effectively fight OCD is through exposure therapy, exposure and response therapy. Mm. And basically that means that you're constantly 
um, not letting yourself give in to the compulsion that you want to do. And so you are having to sit with the obsession and, and try to fight it. So like for me, my OCD is, is there, there are a lot of different themes of OCD and the one that impacts my life the most is, is contamination. Um, and so like, that's basically like your sitcom version of OCD where like, I, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you how many Clorox wipes I've used today. Right. <laughs> um, and literally my house was clean today. And after they leave, I, I, I clean certain areas. You do it again. Yeah, I do it again because I'm like, well, I don't think that they Clorox wipe the couch. So therefore I must do sure. that or else a disaster. Um, and, you know, and so OCD can get better and it gets better through exposure therapy. But exposure therapy is also a lot of work and it causes a lot of distress. And so I'm at a place with my approach to my OCD where, like, I don't want to live every moment of my life fighting this thing. Hmm. Like, there are moments where I need to fight it and there are moments that are, like, value-based reasons why I need to fight it, which is something I, I can get into a little more if you want. But, like – for the most part, if it's not really affecting my life to wipe down my phone seven times in one day, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and like there are going to be a lot of people listening to this um, or if like someone is listening to this who is like an OCD therapist or specializes in this, they might have a very different approach and belief system around it. But to me, I've taken on a harm reduction approach to my OCD rather than like a like eradication approach. And so I'm looking for small changes I can make, looking for the days when I have the energy to fight the compulsion rather than days when I'm drained and stressed and I just like I just need to be a accommodated, mm-hmm. um, looking for when it actually impacts my relationships versus like when it's just like me doing a little thing and like, who really cares that I'm out wiping my car down before I get in it because sure. no one's coming in the car with me anyway, you know? Um, right. and so it is, it is something I have to navigate, you know, it does impact, um, the other people in my life and that sucks. Um, but we all have shit that impacts the other people in our lives. Um, Absolutely. and so, you know, um, I'm at a place where, it is a lot worse than it was before the pandemic. Uh, mm. The pandemic definitely created a lot of new uh, compulsions and issues for me um, and behaviors. But also we're, we live through and are living currently still living through a pandemic. And so like mm-hmm. treating myself with the compassion of like, of course, your contamination OCD got worse during a time where people were actively reinforcing behaviors that your mind has been telling you to do. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, like I had, I have a joke where it's like, I've been waiting for this my whole life. <laughs> You've <laughs> like, been prepped. I know how to track a germ. I know how to keep right. track of what touched what. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, like, I think it really rings true about this idea of, yes, that does impact our relationships and other things that people do that are not mental health conditions still, if you're an asshole, that really impacts your relationship, right? Like there's a lot of things. And at the end of the day, like if you are feeling like you don't have the energy or you just don't want to, you know, fight that compulsion, maybe it's just a little easier or maybe it causes less stress or whatever it is to mitigate that feeling. And it's also like keeping track of like, what's the impact, right? Because like, Am I not doing things because I'm afraid of of the the contamination? And like when I start to edge into that, then it's like, okay, Allison, like we gotta push through this. Like, uh, you know, a, a, a thing that was really helpful that my OCD therapist taught me was like to see how long I can tolerate something rather than like decide that I have to tolerate it. 
Mm. So it'll be like, okay, like maybe I will have something, you know, I won't wipe down the desk right away. And then I'll see how much it bothers me. And I'll see if I can actually go, you know, maybe two hours without wiping it down. And then if I wipe it down, okay, but I went those two hours rather than that really scary decision of like, I'm not allowed to wipe this down. Mm -hmm. Just that change in the way you approach it makes it less scary. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And like you said, you know, it can manifest in different ways for you. It sounds like it's the contamination piece. For me, it sounds like it's more of like an orderly thing or, you know, and again, it's it's not how it was when I was a kid. Um, but when I was a kid, it was very much like things needed to be in the right order and close, you know, everything needed, whatever it was, like it was very much about like things being in their place. And so I'm wondering how you navigate kind of like the complexity of OCD in your advocacy work, because obviously not everyone has those manifestations, right? There are plenty of others. And I'm also wondering what aspects of OCD do you find are commonly misunderstood or overlooked in more broad discussions about mental health? And then a follow-up, because this is a sex ed (laughs) podcast, is how do you see OCD overlapping with sexuality, if you do at all? Yeah, so there's a subset of OCD where the obsession is trying to figure out your own sexuality. And so that can be really draining for people where they're just constantly wondering, am I gay? Am I not gay? Am I bi? Am I not bi? And like and it and it isn't even that, you know, they might be gay, they might be bi, they might be straight, but it's that that it's the constant questioning of their sexuality and that can be really challenging. There's also a subset of OCD where some where people are afraid that they're pedophiles and mm. that can be really challenging. So this like constant fear that they're, you know, uh, a pedophile and that they will act on their pedophilia, even though in fact they are not a pedophile. They're just suffering from that subset of OCD. Then there is also relationship OCD, which is um, a kind of a obsession. There's kind of two parts to that where one is like an obsession about the relationship where it's like, uh, am I in the right relationship? Um, and then another is kind of more partner focused where it's like, does this person love me enough? Um, like, you know, is it's just again, endless questioning. Um, and I think that's something that's really misunderstood about OCD is one, how many different subsets there are. So like, you know, there are plenty of people that have OCD and have never once felt compelled to to clean anything, you mm-hmm. know, because they don't have contamination OCD. And then there are people that have multiple subsets. There are people that kind of bounce around between subsets. Um, like harm OCD is a, seems to be rather common where you're just like very afraid that you're going to hurt another person. And so that is really exhausting for people and, and just like difficult to navigate. And so I think that like – probably the biggest misconception about OCD is that it's not that big of a deal, (laughs) you Mm. know? And I'm someone who at this point in my life would consider my OCD to be mild, mild to moderate. And I'm still consumed with thoughts about it all day. There are people where their OCD compulsions take 10 hours a day where they are not able to live full lives because of their OCD. And it is like incredibly, incredibly debilitating. Mm. And so I think that the way that we sort of flippantly talk about OCD as like just wanting to line things up or like I, you know, it can kind of invalidate it. But also a thing that I've changed the way that I think about it is I used to be a real gatekeeper when it came Mm. to OCD where someone would say like, oh, I'm so OCD. And I would be like, oh, really? When were you diagnosed? 
you know? (laughs) (laughs) Show me your paperwork. Yeah, exactly. Like, but, but then like being in school and just like learning about how people work about, about diagnosis and disorders being more, um, like dimensional rather than categorical and like more of a spectrum. Like there Mm. are going to be a lot of people who have OCD tendencies, but do not meet the threshold of a clinical diagnosis. Right. And so who am I to say that you don't have an OCD tendency around something? Like I'm not in charge of that. And also in this country, it is very difficult to get mental health treatment. So like Mm -hmm. maybe you're not diagnosed because you haven't been able to afford it or because you don't know the resources. And so I think that it's like this two-pronged approach of like one being like more open to people saying that they might have these tendencies, uh, like really validating how it affects their life, even if it might not be at a clinical level. And then also speaking about it with the, with the seriousness that it deserves because it is a real bitch of a disorder to have. Totally. Yeah. I really like what you said too about like the dimensionality aspect and the spectrum because it also really depends on where you're at in your life. Like if a disorder like OCD could come off the back of a trauma, for example. Um, I know like for myself, like when I was young, my parents had just gone through a really nasty divorce. And like I could tell that that was my manifestation, my way of like controlling something as a kid because I couldn't control my environment, right? And so, and like for me, even though I was diagnosed as like anxiety OCD at a young age, I probably wouldn't be diagnosed anxiety OCD now. Like you said, it would more maybe be like anxiety tendencies or OCD tendencies. So yeah, I think, I think just like having a more nuanced conversation around that, it's the same, it's the same kind of reaction that I have too. If someone says like, oh, I'm so OCD or I'm so psycho or whatever, you know, like language really matters Mm -hmm. and the way that we, say certain things can be really stigmatizing for certain people in certain communities. And the more that we're able to really actually talk about the way we feel and the experiences that we have and be authentic about that, the more we're able to genuinely understand one another. Yeah. And and also like the way you talk about it impacts the way you think about it. Right. So Mm -hmm. for me, I, I have OCD. I am not OCD because to Mm -hmm. me that separates the disorder from myself. And that's how I like to view it. You know, people talk about things differently. Other people have language, you know, person first language for something. Some people don't like that. But for me, I really like to say I have OCD to view my OCD as something separate from Allison, separate from my true self. And then my OCD kind of puts this layer over my true self. And so it's always me kind of just like battling to get to get through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and my anxiety does the same thing. Like I always joke that like I think if I didn't have mental illness, I would almost be too chill. <laughs> <laughs> like you, I you think, think that, you – yeah, it's a like, part I of you in that way. Like I think my true self is someone who's like pretty chill, doesn't really care about a lot of stuff, is like pretty go with the flow. But because of these – you know, disorders, I come off as like neurotic and uptight and all these things that I don't think are like at my true essence. Mm, Like the core of who you are. Yeah, I get that. I feel that. And so like during like getting treatment, being on the right meds, like having periods where I'm not that stressed. So those things aren't as, you know, I'm not in a flare up. Like I get to see those glimmers of myself and it's, and it's really nice. Yeah. I mean, anything that you can do to continue to see those glimmers is amazing, right? 
I'm about to get personal here, so listen up. I'm going to tell you a fun fact about me that you definitely didn't know. The lube that I use most consistently is Uber Lube. I really mean it. If you were here with me right now, I'd tell you to go over to my nightstand drawer and tell me what you see. That's right. You would see a bottle of Uber Lube. If you've never heard of Uber Lube, let me tell you about it. Uber Lube is a silky smooth silicone-based lube recommended by leading doctors, and its body-friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. Another amazing thing about Uber Lube is that it doesn't leave a sticky residue like water-based lubes do. It lasts for a long time and doesn't stain clothing or bedding. I have three bottles of Uber Lube on my bedside table right now, ready when I need it. If you're someone who wants to feel more pleasure in the bedroom, use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Trust me, it's amazing. Let me tell you about one of my favorite pleasure product retailers out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you about them. Lion's Den opened its first retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they've grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the U.S., building their reputation on high-quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They are simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now. Too often, women of color are a mere afterthought in conversations around wellness. Hosted by me, Dr. Cassandra Dunbar, Be Well Sis is a wellness podcast where women with diverse expertise and experiences have open and honest conversations that aim to make wellness more inclusive and accessible. Tune in every Tuesday for actionable insights and resources to help you live more joyfully, authentically, and beautifully. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Be Well Sis. If you're tired of hearing the same old judgmental, shaming financial advice about buying too many lattes from old white men who conveniently ignore issues like systemic oppression, it's time to join us on Financial Feminist. I'm Tori Dunlap, globally recognized money speaker and educator, and I'm a part of a new guard of financial educators. On Financial Feminist, we don't just talk about money. We talk about the ways women are affected differently by money. We're feminist first, acknowledging that your financial savviness has less to do with your weekly coffee order and everything to do with the fact that we live in a patriarchal society that gatekeeps women, people of color, and other minorities out of conversations and education about money. With fascinating guests like Nadia Okamoto, Maya Vander, Justin Baldoni, Christy Carlson Romano, Queen Herbie, and more, we dive into topics like menstrual justice, the investing gap, diet culture, the psychology of money, and more. Plus, you get bi-weekly how-to episodes like how to start investing or how I saved $100,000 at age 25. We're smashing the patriarchy and getting rich one episode at a time. Subscribe to Financial Feminist wherever you're listening now. So you you know you mentioned that you went back to school for a master's in psychology and I'm wondering, you know, what motivated this decision maybe other than you just kind of wanting to 
you know, pay a lot of money for a master's program and also, you know, deepen your, your content knowledge, but also how has it really like enhanced your understanding of mental health personally and professionally? So I'm very privileged in that my parents paid for my degree. So I don't want to act like, oh, it's like not a big deal to go get a master's. Like, why not just do it? Like, it is a huge financial burden. And I was like incredibly privileged that it wasn't one that I had to bear. Um, And when I originally went back to school, I had planned on becoming a licensed therapist. And then as I went along and I took my my law and ethics class, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. Sure. <laughs> Mostly because my my creative career uh, was taking off more and I didn't feel like I had to in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I switched from a, a clinical psych program to just a, a, a master's in psychology. And, you know, I think that the program, it just it just changed the way that I think about everything. You know, I before was only looking at the world through my personal experience of mental health. And that's not the case anymore. I have so much more empathy for other people. I understand how vital context is. You know, like we love to make assumptions about people as if they had lived our lives when really they didn't. And unless you know exactly their context, you can't possibly understand what they're going through or why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. It it made me more knowledgeable about um, types of, of disorders that I don't that I don't personally have. Um, and it just like it humbled me. Like I think I used to think I knew a lot more. And as I went through the program, it was an experience of I really don't know that much. We don't really know that much. <laughs> We're just kind of doing our best out here. Totally. Yeah. I mean, was it a two-year program? Oof. Um, I did I did it at night, uh, like a, a like an evening program, oh, wow. um, like four to seven or seven to ten classes so that I because I was working the whole time. So it, wow. it took me about three and a half years to do it slowly in, in that way. That's tough to do it while you're working full time. I mean, that what that must have been a whirlwind. It was a nightmare. It was, um, <laughs> it was a nightmare. true nightmare. <laughs> and once I switched to the psych program, you know, that's a, a program a lot of people take so that they can go on to get a PhD or a PsyD. And so there was like these like assessment classes, like, like, like scientific method, like just stuff I didn't need that like I was not learning about psychology anymore. I was like learning how to score an intelligence test. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> sure. Hard yeah. to stay motivated. I could totally relate. We had to I had to take a biostats class at Columbia. And I was like, I'm gonna fucking fail this shit. This is right? incredibly hard. Yeah. And I I've just never been good at stats, good at math and like in college, that was never something that I studied. I was a liberal arts girl um, who did. I just don't enjoy math, and so I'm also not good at it. But yeah, definitely been there where you're like, <laughs> okay, where can I get back to the good stuff? Um, but I think it just helps. It helps me feel more confident when I do write about this stuff. Um, yeah, because you know, I think. I think it's really wonderful that there is a lot more mental health discussion happening um, online and and in real life. But there are also a lot of um, people out there that really like to simplify things. Yes. That really like to say, and this will work for everyone or this one change changed my life and it will change your life too. And, and I just, I'm kind of the anti that I'm kind of like, this works for me, but who knows about you (laughs) or, you know, uh, really taking the, the one size does not fit all approach, which is less flashy and less clickable. Um, 
but I think is is an important part of, of the conversation. I completely agree. And it's tough because people definitely do want to fix their problems, right? Mm-hmm. And for, for them to come up with that solution. And I do think it's healthy to think that like life is very long. We're going to be battling different things at different times. We're going to be having so much joy, hopefully, about different things at different times. Um, and to not see it as a staircase, but as a roller coaster. And it's just, that's just a a more realistic view of how we're going to be able to get through this thing. Totally. And a lot of it is me just honestly sharing my experience. There's nothing to take away other than the fact that like, my experience is not unique. Like these things that we maybe feel shame around or these things that we think only we have is something that a lot of us go through. And and I think that like the first step in, in kind of getting a handle on your mental health is, is removing any shame you feel around it. Mm. Um, because that just muddles it down and that just makes everything so much harder. It makes it harder to discuss with other people. Um, it makes it harder for you to kind of understand why you're acting certain way because like the, because you have OCD, like it's not like you're, you're not a terrible person. You're not like someone who deserves this. You're not a freak. You just like have OCD. And so like your brain is going to work different than someone's brain who doesn't have it. Right. Yeah. And at least for me, I don't know about like your family and your genetics, but for me, it's so relevant to like seeing how my parents like live and work and like my brother and just kind of being like, oh, wow, we really all are kind of doing the same shit, aren't we? (laughs) Um, But I think that that feels more uniting for me, at least, than makes me feel alone of being like, well, I definitely got it from you two, like for sure. (laughs) Um, But that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'd love to talk about what you've written a lot about, which is relationships, right? Like throughout your career, how relationships can impact mental health, both positively and negatively. And I'm wondering if you can share some overarching insights or principles that you've discovered about navigating healthy relationships and maybe what guidance would you provide to individuals seeking to enhance the quality of their own connections with other people? Yeah. So I was terrible at dating. Um, I was like, like lost control of myself when it came to romantic relationships. And it took me a really (laughs) embarrassingly long time to understand that that was very much tied to my mental health struggles. Like I was like, oh, I have anxiety and OCD and I'm terrible at dating. But like realizing how much the two influenced each other and how relationship and romantic struggles was like the number one trigger for my mental health and brought out the worst in me was like where I felt like I lost the most control of myself and then being like, oh, like that's interesting. (laughs) So maybe if I get a better handle on my mental health, I'll be able to be better in relationships and they won't be so terrifying because when something bad happens, I won't not just be heartbroken, I won't also have a mental breakdown, Mm. (laughs) you know? Um, And so I kind of noticed that I was getting better at dating like in in 2019. And I think a big part of it was just like changing my relationship with myself. Like I did not like myself. And so therefore other people's opinions of me mattered a lot. I was constantly – under the assumption that I was unlovable. I saw everything through the lens of me being unlovable. So if you're constantly looking to prove to yourself that your partner doesn't love you, 
you'll find proof of that, Mm. (laughs) right? Like that's the lens through which you see the world. You're going to skew stuff to make it fit your narrative. Right. Um, And so really working to move away from that, working to move away from having an anxious attachment style to having a secure attachment style was really huge, knowing that that change was possible. Um, And then I think the other really helpful thing uh, is to understand how your brain works. Because there's an assumption that when you meet the right person, they will automatically know how to show up for you, how to care for you, how to be a good partner for you. And it's like, why? (laughs) Like, you're two different people that come from two different families, two different cultures, two different life experiences. Like, the idea that you would instinctively know how to be the best partner for the person you're with is like a fallacy that I think causes like a lot of problems. Yeah. And so instead, what I always say is I say – It's your job to figure out how you work, to figure out what you need, and then tell your partner that. And it's their job to listen. It's not their job to figure it out. Absolutely. The communication is critical. And even when you and your partner have been together for a long time, there's always going to be something new because you're also changing. And I think we don't really consider that while we're kind of expecting a lot out of our partner sometimes. It's like, okay, but what about the way that you have shifted and that you have changed and how you're growing and like your thoughts and feelings and the way that you're going about the world is maybe different than last year or five years ago or what have you. And that to me is the scariest part of partnership, right? Because it's like, I know that I want to be with this version of you, but how can I possibly know that I'll want to be with a future version of you? You just don't. And I think you have to just say, if I don't want to, I don't have to. Right. (laughs) You know? Right. Because like, you know, um, I'm working on a book all about marriage. And like one of the main things is like marriage is a choice, but it's also a choice you can can opt out of. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think it's important to go into marriage with the commitment to make it work, with the willingness to do the work. But to not feel like because you made this commitment as that version of you to that version of them that you have to maintain it regardless of who you both become. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just mapping what you're saying onto my own partnership selfishly. (laughs) But just my fiance and I, we've been together for a little over seven years. And when we first started dating, I was 23 years old, right? So it's just kind of like, okay, what? who was I then? Who am I now? I probably at the core am the same bad bitch, but there are definitely <laughs> shifts and, you know, all of these ways that we show up for each other that are new and and wonderful. And even though we know each other super well, um, we are planning together a, a whole life, right? So it's like, who knows what what different Danielles and Davids there will be in the future. Yeah. And and like, I think what isn't helpful is to try to anticipate that. Right. Because an anxious mind is like, well, what if they become this? Or what if that happens? Or what if I do that? And it's like, no, you don't know what's going to happen. All that you need to know is that whatever happens, you will be able to handle it. Mm. And I think that was the biggest lesson is like, There is always risk in romantic relationships. You are always putting yourself up to be hurt. But the difference is is in the confidence that you have on how you would handle that hurt. Mm. 
right? So like when you're really not doing well, it might not be a safe time for you to date because if things go badly, you might not be able to care for yourself. You might really get rocked. You might have a breakdown. You might really slide back down whatever progress you've been making. But if you're in a place where you're like, huh, I seem to be doing pretty well. I have coping mechanisms. I have a support system. I know how I operate. Yes, it would be absolutely horrible if this person that I love left me, but it wouldn't destroy me and it wouldn't make me want to die. <laughs> like, right. um, It wouldn't mean that I needed to die or that I was going to or that I would jump to these conclusions that I used to jump to that I will never find love again, that I'm destined to be lonely forever, that like, you know, when you realize that you're attaching more meaning to things um, than you should, that's like a signal to really like step back and look at the narratives that you're telling yourself about dating. And changing the narratives can like make it so it's a lot safer to date. Yeah, that's really helpful and powerful. That's great. Transitioning back to emotional support, lady, because you know how much <laughs> I love it. Uh, I would love to hear like – what impact do you hope that it has on people struggling with mental health or just wanting to connect? And also, how do you encourage engagement within the community, both on social and on Patreon? Like, what role do you see community playing in mental health support? I really like started it to kind of build a community. I will say that I I, I don't know how great I am at doing that. Um, <laughs> I think that it's really lovely to um, – you know, to, to see commenters comment on each other's comments and to share their stories with each other. I'd say that the community is more so on my, on my sub stack than on my Instagram. Um, I, I will always write back to any comment on my sub stack, whereas on Instagram, it's a little harder. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm always like, if you need, if you need me get, go to my sub stack. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I've seen people just like, you know, read a post and then share their thoughts on the post, share their similar experience, share how what didn't relate to them, but what did. And I think that there's just something really like lovely about like realizing that we're not alone in all of this. And, you know, one of the most wonderful things I've, I've heard is, is that like engaging with my content has led people to feel more comfortable with their mental health, to get therapy, to try medication, to like, again, get back to that feeling of like, okay, this is just a part of me, not something that I need to place judgment on. Um, and so that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is just like show that we can live big full lives and also, you know, struggle with our mental health. Really into that. Yeah. I'm kind <laughs> of, a, I'm at this like funny place with therapy where like, I've been in therapy on and off throughout my whole life and I'm like fi I'm finally at a place where I feel like dwelling and unpacking certain things might just not be for me right now and I'm yeah. kind of like I don't really think I need therapy right now like am I fine like what's the <laughs> like going through this cycle right but I think therapy is such a wonderful tool for people you know all there are so many different kinds of therapy too not just talk therapy there's really a lot of different practices but yeah, I just think that applying it to your life when you feel like you want it and need it, it, it can be really powerful and really something that shouldn't be taken for granted. Um, but like you said before, like it can also be very expensive and it's also really fucking hard to find a new therapist and like mm -hmm. to go through that whole process. It's a very exhausting, challenging thing sometimes. 
And that's a big part of like why I, I try to like distill expert advice and expert like uh, like views into things that are digestible for people like that might not have access to therapy. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is like a lot of what the advocacy is, is like providing resources that like aren't normally like as attainable or accessible um, unless you have the resources to, to see a therapist. And, you know, one of the big things I learned in school is like, unless you suffer from, you know, really kind of chronic um, mental illness, like certain, you know, certain um, disorders, uh, you don't necessarily need to be in therapy your whole life. And actually, the goal is probably not to be the goal is to get to a place where you are able to incorporate what you've learned into your daily life. And then, you know, maybe then you're having your first kids, so you go back to therapy, or maybe mm-hmm. you're going through a divorce, so you go back to therapy, or, or just something is happening. So you revisit it. Um, but for a lot of people, it doesn't need to be every week for the rest of your life. And I think that that makes it less um, overwhelming to, to sort of check it out. Absolutely. Well, Allison, we only have a couple more questions. This has been really, really fantastic. So thank you again for being on. But for folks listening who might want to become mental health advocates and uh, follow in your footsteps, so to speak, what advice do you have and how can they approach sharing their stories in a way that's just as authentic and impactful as the way that you do? I have found that like the details like the weird specific details are the things that people like can really latch on to. Like, you know, when you're like, oh, no one else could possibly have this bizarre thing. And then it's like, oh, that's so relatable, you know? So don't be afraid to like dive into the the daily details of, of living with mental illness. Um, and also showing, showing the good stuff too, you know, like I, I am someone who has always incorporated humor into everything that I do. And that, also applies to my mental health advocacy. Like I have to be able to laugh at this part of my life. I think there are times when that's not appropriate, but I think that like for a lot of it, like I I'm making fun of myself because I know I'm being ridiculous <laughs> and that can really diffuse things. That can make it like easier for people to engage with it because it's not so somber. It's not so serious all of the time. And I think just like being open um, to share when you want to share, but not feel like any you owe anyone your story, you know, like share because you want to, not because you feel like you have to. Amazing. And I'd love if you could share where folks can find you and follow your work and check out your book and your Substack and all that good stuff. Yes. So many places um, on Instagram and Substack, it's Emotional Support Lady. My personal socials are at Allison Raskin on, on Twitter and Instagram. And then for a ridiculous reason, it's at Allison Raskin Baby on TikTok. <laughs> um, and then I also have my my podcast, Just Between Us, which is also a YouTube channel. And then my nonfiction book is called Overthinking About You and should be available wherever you get books. Love it. Thank you again, Allison, for being on. This has been such a wonderful episode. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a blast. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalow. Our producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our producer and communications coordinator is Sadie Leegee. Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners. Want to partner with us? 
email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. Want to rep us with some brand new Sex Ed with DB merch? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash merch to check it out now. See you next time.